What is the one word that can change everything for your marriage? Gary Thomas is our guest this week discussing the attitude that will enrich, deepen, and spiritually strengthen every marriage. It's all in episode 83 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 83 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host. And this week we're talking with Gary Thomas. Gary is the best-selling author and international speaker whose ministry brings people closer to Christ and closer to each other. He is the well-known author of the popular Sacred Marriage, and this week we're talking to him about his new book titled Cherish. And now, here's our conversation with Gary Thomas. Well, Gary, it is such a pleasure to have you in the studio here to be on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure to be here. And you have probably our most well-known for a book that you wrote years ago called Sacred Marriage. And I had, I had to read that book in college. Well, didn't have to. I, I got to. It was, <laughs> it was kind of the popular marriage yeah. book when I was, was, I was in school. And so talk about how that book has kind of transformed your ministry or how God has used that in the years since it came out. Well, it changed my life and it put my kids through college. <laughs> put it that way, three <laughs> private tuitions. It was just, it came about because I'd been writing on spiritual formation and I had noticed that my marriage and later parenting were two of the biggest aspects of spiritual forming activity that, that I knew. But all the books on spiritual formation were talking about being a monk or a nun in spite of being married, go off and do private retreats or meditation. Those are good things. And I thought, well, why aren't we looking at marriage as a spiritual discipline? Now, coming out of seminary, being a little bit inclined in that way, I had a very boring subtitle that could have killed the book, Celebrating Marriage as a Spiritual Discipline. But somebody at Zondervan reading it pulled out that subtitle, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And it just took off because it was a different approach. I'm not a therapist, not a trained counselor. I'm not a psychologist, so I, I couldn't and didn't want to compete with the incredible, helpful how-to books that were out there. So I really look at it more as a spiritual formation book, how God uses your marriage to help you grow, that when you know the purpose behind the difficulties of marriage, you'll be more engaged, and when you can see the benefit of working through it, perhaps you won't give up and even appreciate might be a strong word, but at least respect the process of marriage and how God uses it to shape us. And I really think that that book was one of the first that that taught couples that sometimes the challenges in marriage yeah. are actually on purpose, that there are good things that can come from the challenges. Because a lot of times you get into marriage and you're like, hopefully there's more good days than bad days, and you try to avoid those challenges. But um, but that so is that that's that's really it's great. what I've heard most. In fact, I think when the book first came out, one of the things that made it a little controversial, and some people have have pushed back some, is that I was willing to admit the difficulties of marriage. In fact, I open up the book with the first time. A scientist, I guess is the right word. I'm not sure what you'd call it back then. We're willing to actually cut into a human body. For a number of centuries, there was this horror. It was sacrilegious. It was just who wanted to do it. But somebody finally decided they're going to cut away the skin, crack open the rib cage, and study it. And I said, that's kind of what we have to do with marriage because so many of the marriage books at that time I thought we're a little simplified. Apply these five principles of Jesus and you'll have a happy marriage. Uh, do these six steps and you're going to have, you know, go on your way and be joyful and everything. And I said, you know what? Even the best of marriages 
can be really difficult. Wonderful, good, transcendent. I've said it many times. If I had 100 lives, I'd want to be married in every one. But I don't think any marriage would be easy. And that's sort of trying to recapture that purpose that maybe that's there by God's design, that it's not just about our happiness. It's about God using it to shape us and making us into different people. And here at Church Leaders, we, we run a lot of content helping pastors and ministry leaders with their marriages and, and really wanting to, we feel that's, a, that's a, a need. People are always reaching out to us, like, help me, help me strengthen my marriage. And, and one piece um, that did particularly well was a, had a title that resonated with people, and it was, Pastor, remember that your spouse is the most vulnerable person in your church. Mm-hmm. Can you respond to how the unique challenges that, that ministry leaders face um, in their own marriages? I can think of two right off the top. One, you can't fake it. You can't fake your marriage in front of your kids, and you can't fake your marriage behind a pulpit. Let me put it that way. People are watching. Now, that gives us a lot of opportunities, and it gives us a lot of responsibility. Uh, I am on the teaching team at Second Baptist Church in Houston. We've got um, six different campuses, and so when I'm on the normal rotation, I'll speak at one church Sunday morning, and travel and leave right away as soon as the sermon is done. And, and I travel about 20 miles and speak at another church. It starts at 11. And so I'll usually come in a side door. They lead me in, and I'll sit down, and Lisa would be there to greet me. She would often you know, get up a little bit later and come to the later service. And one time I came in, and we just kind of greeted each other. I gave her a kiss or whatnot, and um, it was in the middle of a worship set, and then I was up a couple songs later. And afterwards, this woman came up to me afterwards and said, I just can't tell you what it did. Just I saw the love between the two of you. I saw that she would do anything for you, and, and I could tell you weren't faking it, that you just adore her, and I, that what it spoke to me. Now, my preference would be that people are worshiping when they're worshiping. I, I don't want them to notice me coming in. It's a church in the round, and it's a pretty big place. It seats about 6,000, so I, I wasn't even thinking of myself as on stage yet. I'm very much downstage. But people are watching. And I would just say to pastors, you're preaching a sermon when they just see whether your hand is behind your wife's back or not. The, the tone you use. When you preach, is there obvious passion and love and affection? Or is, are there little barbs? Are you, are you trying to preach at your wife, using the pulpit sort of to, to challenge? People will pick that up. You, you can't fake it. We are, if I could just use it, we are spiritually naked behind the pulpit, which is why I, I plead with myself and my brothers and sisters, we have to do our spiritual homework because if we're harboring a sin, if we're harboring a wrong attitude, if we're harboring a wrong relationship or with our wife, I think ultimately it would come out. In in retrospect, somebody would be able to look at what we said and did and say, yeah, we should have been able to see that. So I think to preach with integrity, to lead with integrity, we have to address our marriages. They have to be authentic. And there's going to be mornings where we're not doing so well. In fact, Two weekends ago, I shared this time where Lisa and I just did not connect and, and people were laughing about it. But I'm affirming her as I'm doing it. And it was really healing to people. Gary writes all these marriage books. They've been married for 31 years and they're still having a hard time communicating. So I'm not saying that we project having a perfect marriage by any means. But there is an affection there that people will pick up on or a lack of affection that people will pick up. Because I've found, and I think this is true for most guys, the more we cherish our wives, the more we respect women in general. If we have a bad relationship with our wife, 
it tends to sour us toward women in general. So our marriage will bleed off into other things. So that might be a second thing. The other thing I'd say, though, about being behind the pulpit when you're married and, married and the challenge, the way we talk about our wives. I have a 23-year-old daughter filled with opinions as a, you know, she's in the media and a 23-year-old daughter might be, and, and she has had it up to here. She, she goes to church every week, but she's had it up to here, she said, with young pastors talking about their, quote, smoking hot wives, end quote. And she just said, do you realize that you're saying that that's what matters most, how she looks? I, I want to hear these guys. She goes, it's almost like it's a trophy. I want to hear these guys. So I'm not talking about just glib comments, but I really appreciate my wife's intelligence, my wife's godliness, my wife challenged me. I saw her gentleness or I saw her courage or something. If we're just describing our wives in that way, and I think that generation is a little too hyper-intensive. <laughs> I, I think I, I've tried to tell my daughter Look, it's not easy being a pastor. You, you got to give them a little bit of slack. It just, it, it's hard. And they're trying to compliment their wives. And they're looking for things that they can be frustrated and offended about. I, I'm with that. But it's just, I think it's just good since pastors are listening in, how we compliment our wives and what we compliment them for. And then if I haven't bored you, the third thing that is a particular challenge in ministry, and I, I say this as one who's been married for 31 years, and so I'm sharing my failing, and I don't want to project it on all the other younger pastors, but I think it was my problem. You feel like you have a call of God, and you feel like God really wants to move one particular morning or one particular evening or whatever it is, and you're excited, and you've been praying about it all week, and sometimes marriage is just inconvenient. <laughs> Your wife has an attitude, or she has something that really concerns her, and you're thinking, one time I, I preached on Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you as well and not worry about these other things. And as soon as we got home, it was one of these other things that was really flipping my wife out about. I thought, well, that sermon didn't take too well, at least in, in one place. And what happens is that we have a sense of entitlement. Because I'm in ministry, I just need a stronger wife in this area or that area. And we've probably heard of Ruth Graham, who just seems like this super heroic pastor's wife who ran everything so her husband was free and released him and, and did all of that. And we, we obviously don't know the real story, but I'm sure she was a, a, a brilliant wife. But I believe my first ministry and the most important ministry, the way I please God the most, is how well I love my wife. And that's not just a cliche because I happen to be married to God's daughter. He is passionate about her. And I'm just looking at it from a father-in-law's perspective. Now that I have two marriageable, marriage-age daughters, however you say that, if there was a guy who was very successful in his church and was treating my daughter miserably or ignoring my daughter to be successful in his ministry, I'd say, this is a sham. This is a sham. How can you act with integrity when she's off there, she wants to be connected with you. She wants to be cherished by you, and you hardly have any time for her. And, and I just think with God, it's tenfold because it's his daughter. And I, and I just realized when I connected my marriage with worship, that really no man could please me more than loving one of my daughters so well. And I don't know that I'll ever please God more than cherishing his girl. Uh, and she'll always be in his eyes, his girl. I don't mean that in a pejorative way but you know dad always kind of looks at his daughter that way and 
And, and so let your worship begin with your marriage. Don't have this sense of entitlement because the reality is when you have to have patience with your wife, when you have to be understanding with your wife, that's helping you become a better pastor. It's helping you become a better minister. And so don't look at, oh, I wish I could have a different wife. It's always, I wish I could be a different husband. And for the pastor who's listening, who, who maybe feels convicted by that, like just feels like, man, I'm so busy with, with things at the church. What are some things that pastors can do to make sure they're doing what you just recommended, keeping their relationship with their wife as a priority over, over the church? Yeah. One of the things I did, and it was a little different for me, though I'm on a church staff now. For 15 years, I was self-employed, writing and speaking. And my wife had veto power over my schedule. She approved every event. Now, she also paid the bill, so it was helpful because basically she could say, okay, do I want to have a weekend without Gary, but we need to pay this. And so she could say, I'd rather be without him and be able to pay this bill than not. And, and what we've carried over in ministry is that I'm, I'm running my schedule by her because we just got in, in practice of that. And she can say, you've got to tell him no. You've got to say, and, and I just kind of let her be the gatekeeper because then I'm not fighting her. It's just sort of like, Honey, if you feel that you're getting the short end of the stick, I'm going to change that. I'll, I'll do the hard conversation. I'll own it. I'm not blaming you, but I'm letting you say, honey, you, you've got to cut that out. And so I think just giving her that power undercuts so much of the exasperation there might be. And then I, I really, you know, I'm just cognizant of the fact that I, I want to preach with integrity, and that means... Sometimes I might give up a little prep time to do something Lisa really wants to do. Sometimes I might say, man, I really want to tweak this sermon on a Saturday night. and Lisa really wants to go out somewhere. I said, you know what? I think God's going to be happier that I give his daughter a good time than maybe not have to look at my notes another three or four times the next morning. So it's, it's priorities, but then letting her speak into it and, and control it. Let's talk about the, the new book that you have coming out. Um, you, you chose a title, Cherish, uh, a word that my wife actually loves that word. Whenever I use that word, it kind of she, her, her heart melts a little bit. She, she just loves when I use that word. Talk about kind of where the idea for this book came or what, what you were hoping to do with this new work. There have been a couple books that I feel were discovered more than written. I don't want to get too mystical here. I'm ordained in the Southern Baptist Church, so I can talk that way and not get in trouble, I guess. The Sacred Pathways was one. Some pastors might be aware of that. It's nine different ways that people relate to God. And if you looked at the book proposal, it was entirely different. And I normally feel like an architect when I'm writing a book. Here's the room. I'm going to put this door here and stairway here and whatnot. The Sacred Pathways was almost like an archaeologist. I'm dusting it off. I'm like, Oh, and I'd see this in Scripture, and I'd see this character in Scripture, and it was just like, it was really fun. And I feel like cherishes that. I feel like it was given to me in a lot of ways. It just hit me that most of us, when we got married, the vast majority of us, if we use traditional vows, um, I, I pledge to honor and cherish you until death do us part. Every marriage book talks about love. Every sermon talks about love. We never even address cherish again. Uh, what does it mean to cherish? Is it just a throwaway word? Does it mean something different? And so I just I want to explore 
what that could mean and, and what it's about. And when I began to look at it, it completely changed the tenor of my relationship with my wife. Because when I think of love, which I think is always the background of a biblical marriage, I think of things like commitment and sacrifice and service and whatnot. It, it's sort of the, the hardcore muscle of marriage. Cherish is sort of the tasting part of marriage, the heart of marriage. Now, I know heart is a muscle, so I kind of lose that. But I think people know what I mean, where 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And I think Song of Songs is, is sort of the, the Cherish chapter. And there's a verse in Song of Songs that I repeat three times in Cherish. I don't usually do that in a book, but it's just so perfect because I think it's what every wife wants to hear from her husband. Song of Songs 6-9, my dove my perfect one is the only one. And there's just this sense of delight in his wife. And I think the second or third chapter, I talk about how uh, the reason that Adam and Eve are so satisfied is that there was literally no other woman that Adam could compare Eve to. I mean, there, there's no Jana, there's no Shanice, there's no Juanita. I mean, th- there's just Eve. He couldn't say, well, she's not as kind or she's not as thoughtful or she's curvier or she's thinner or she's got a better sense of you. Eve defined woman to Adam. And I said, that's a place of a cherishing marriage where my wife defines beauty. I'm not comparing her to other women. She knows I'm delighted in her. So I say, my dove, my perfect one is the only one. And that's when I think a woman feels cherished and loved and I think that's the atmosphere where she blossoms and then there are just a lot of things that came out Ezekiel 16 Jerusalem was this anonymous cast off city very if any pastors have preached on it it is a grotesque passage the child is born in the muck and gore of birth and left and abandoned to die and God sees the child and says I say to you live and then he he bathes the child and salts the child and clothes the child which his legitimacy in the ancient Near East, and then later takes Jerusalem as his wife and then spoils her. She's dressed in the fine linens and she eats the tasty flour and honey and and the choices of fruits until she becomes this regal queen envied by the entire world that God cherished Jerusalem, not because of who she was. She became who she was because he cherished her. And if a pastor wants a stronger wife, I would just say, why don't you try God's approach? Here was somebody completely abandoned in muck and gore, not wanted by anyone. He cherished her. He indulged her. He chose her. He said, I say to you, live. So we we breathe life into our wives. And then they blossom and they actually become stronger wives, filled with life, who God created them to be. And I, I just think that, you know, we, we have evolved in so many different areas. When you think of knowledge, how the study of the earth uh, revolves around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth 500 years ago. It's stunning that today I understand stuff that Aristotle didn't get or Aquinas or Augustine. And then 400 years ago, we finally got gravity down. <laughs> Isaac knew. I mean, it's, it's really stunning how recent that is and how we've evolved just in social sciences. When you look at madmen set in the 60s, people say they treated women like that and got away with it. They had racial relate. I mean, it's appalling for us. And that's 55, 60 years ago. Well, I think our view of marriage has to evolve. 
the reality is how we treat women today, how my kids' generation looks at gender relations. I'm not challenging the fact that there's a difference in genders in Scripture. Just for those that matter, I'm a complementarian. But when you talk to good complementarians, none of, none of them that I know, and I don't care to listen to ones that don't want to go to condescension and the disrespect of a previous age when it was defined that way. So there is just a new freedom that I think the younger generation can have where they can cherish each other, appreciate each other's strength, where we can take marriage to a new level. And I wrote the book because I'm tired of people thinking that infatuation is the peak of a relationship. You get infatuated, you have a great year and a half to two years, and then you pay for it the rest of your life with this miserable relationship where you don't like each other. I think cherish is better than infatuation. Infatuation fades and you can't recapture it. Neurologically, we know that now. Studying the brain, infatuation can't last. Cherishing is something you can choose. It's something you can build. It's something you can grow in. It's something you can foster and cultivate. I've been infatuated and I've been in a marriage that pursues cherishing and I think cherishing is so much better. And so I want to raise, well, I believe God wants to raise the level of marriages in the church to that of cherish. So the world can define marriage however they want. But when they look at marriages in the church, we have a whole different demonstration of what marriage could be. Mm-hmm. Can you flesh that out? Like when you use the word cherish, um, what are some things like that, that would show you in a marriage if you saw a couple acting a certain way where you're like, that couple cherishes each other? One of the images I use to help guys, when I, when I say to a woman, how do you feel cherished? She's off and running. I mean, <laughs> turn over the hourglass, right? Because it's going to take a while. When I say to a guy, how do you feel cherished? When I was working on it, is what? It was almost like, should guys even want to be cherished? And so to get it across to guys, I put it in the language of a car. How do you cherish a car? Because a lot, of, I know it's changing with younger guys. They're not so into cars. But a lot of us growing up, you know, I mean, cars were a big thing. And when a guy cherishes a car, just look at how he cherishes that car. He, he protects it. You know, he, he parks it in a place where it's not going to get dinged. He indulges it. It gets the super wax job. It doesn't just get washed. He doesn't drive it down the street with potholes. He thinks about it. And when it does, it gives him pleasure. Uh, he wants to showcase it to others. Come out and see my new baby. And you just look at all of that attention and say, well, if we could do that for a car, what if we could do it for where we showcase our wife? I have a whole chapter on showcasing your wife on saying, how do I let others see her beauty? What if one of my goals in marriage was to help other people see how beautiful my wife is inside and out. I'm not just speaking of physical beauty. I'm talking about the beauty of her person. And then I'm going to protect her. I'm going to protect her reputation. I'm going to want her to feel safe. I, I'm, I'm going to, to have a, a nurturing attitude toward her. I'm going to indulge her. Just as God indulged Jerusalem, I want to do things that make her feel she's really special to me. Not that I'm taking her for granted, but that she sees that I'm indulging her. Um, The ultimate picture, I really think, is trying to get back to that Adam and Eve, the only man, the only woman in the world, which I, I, I know it sounds altruistic, but I throw it out there as a goal because when you get to Song of Songs 6, 9, my dove, my only one is the perfect one, it really does 
change marriage, you become more content. Your spouse becomes more secure. And I've seen it because as pastors, you know, we've stood by all of those guys when they see their brides coming up the aisle. And it used to be everybody would turn and look for the bride. And it's changing because of memes on the internet. People are now trying to look at the groom. Is he crying? What kind of face is he making? I'm right next to him, right? I'm just there. At that moment, there is no other woman in the world to him. I mean, mentally, that church is filled with women, probably more women than men. Not probably. At a wedding, definitely filled with more women than men. But she's the only one that matters to him. And what I say to guys is, what if that's your daily reality? What if there's not a chance of you having an affair because you have other women that are your sisters and your mothers and your daughters in Christ, but there's only one woman you will ever think about in that way. I'm not just talking about sexual. I'm just talking about in, for, for your emotional desire, for just that, that you cherish her in a way. I, I want to respect and be humble and encouraging toward every woman in the church that I work with and outside the church, frankly. But there's only one I'm going to cherish like that. And, and it's just different. And so what I did is I used 1 Corinthians 13. Love is about being gracious and altruistic. Love is patient and kind. But cherish is about being enthusiastic and enthralled. How much more pleasing is your love than wine? And the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. That in 1 Corinthians 13, love tends to be quiet and understated. Love does not envy. It does not boast. But cherish boasts la- boldly and loudly. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. And there's seven or eight distinctions like that where I just say, this is what we think of when we think of love, and this is what we think of when we think of cherishing. They're not at war with each other. I'm not trying to put cherish over love any more than I never meant to put holiness over happiness. Holiness preserves happiness. Holiness is the doorway to happiness. Cherish strengthens love. Cherish serves love. Love protects cherish. They're complementary realities, but by breaking them apart, we can just look at it, I think, a little more precisely, set the bar a little bit higher, and experience, I think, a new kind of marriage. Well, Gary, this is such a powerful topic. I feel like we're just getting started, but I love that you've written this book because I feel like it will change the conversation for a lot of people. And, and help them to look at their marriages in fresh ways and to think about, you know, I, I've always focused on loving my spouse, but, but what does it mean to, to also cherish? So thank you so much for the book and for your ministry to marriages and for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Gary Thomas for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and consider sending this episode to somebody that you know who might benefit from listening to it. Also, you can download the show notes for this episode and every episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. In those show notes, we always include resources, mention the show, and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve this podcast or guests you'd love to hear us talk to, email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.